Hey everyone, Dr. Hanisha here. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast, Mahan Health with Dr. Hanisha. Mahan literally translates to great in Sanskrit, and it only makes sense to have the absolute best when it comes to your health. My goal is by you listening or watching this podcast, you're getting just a little bit closer to achieving Mahan or great health yourself. This podcast is all for you, so please make sure to comment what you'd like to learn more about so I can get a guest on the show who's an expert in that field, or I might even talk about it myself. I do see patients and clients all over the world virtually, so make sure to book your free 15-minute phone call today to see how you can start achieving Mahan or great health yourself. Also, I'm really excited because I am now working with the Berkey Water Filter Company. I absolutely love my Berkey. It filters over 200 contaminants, including a number of heavy metal toxins that are often found in your water that can affect your gut health, hormones, brain health, mental health, and so much more. It also has a fluoride filter, which you do have to get separately, but absolutely worth it. If you use my code, Dr. Hanisha, you can get 5% off on your order, which may not seem like a, a lot at first, but it can definitely help with such an amazing water filter to drink and bathe in. We should all be drinking at least 80 ounces of water daily, so um, and taking a shower most, most of the days. So it is absolutely crucial to make sure we have the highest quality of water when we're um, drinking and or taking a shower. All right, let's talk about the episode for today. Today's episodes were, in today's episode, we're talking about miscarriages with Dr. Jordan Robertson. We're talking about how women can optimize their chances of reducing miscarriages and maintaining that pregnancy. And we talk about what it means to carry to term. Here's a little bit more info about Dr. Robertson before we get to the interview. Dr. Jordan Robertson is a naturopathic doctor, podcaster, and women's health author. She has a she has published a best-selling book titled Caring to Term: How to Get Pregnant, Stay Pregnant, and Carry a Healthy Baby to Term. Her podcast, Women's Health Unplugged, reaches thousands of women every month with a focus on education and empowerment of women in their health journey. She has lectured across Ontario for various groups, including McMaster Medical School, the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors, the Canadian Fertility Show, and the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. Dr. Robertson has a special interest in women's health, including expertise on PMS, menopause, fertility, miscarriage, PCOS, and endometriosis. Dr. Robertson is the off-site naturopathic doctor for the McMaster Hospital Endometriosis Clinic and owns an integrative medical center, Clarity Health, in Burlington, Ontario. You can find Dr. Jordan on social media, including Instagram, where she offers health tips, motivation, and links to free resources on women's health. Make sure to rate and review that this podcast. I'm really excited for you to um, listen to this episode. There's so many women who have experienced miscarriages, and um, I have some patients who actually have never been able to carry to term. And so this is a very, very important topic, I think, um, to make sure that we can do whatever we can to optimize our chances of not only getting pregnant, but also maintaining that pregnancy. But um, I'm not going to hold you up any longer. Make sure to reach out to Dr. Robertson or myself after the show. All right. Enjoy. Two. Hi, Dr. Robertson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm sorry. I realized you actually go by Dr. Jordan. 
correct? I do just go by Jordan. Yeah, Jordan? that's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, okay, well, I'm so glad you're on the show. Um, I was just telling you how I like absolutely admire all of your posts on Instagram, and I really enjoy your podcast as well. So I'm excited to have you on the show with me here today. Mm-hmm. And um, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So my first question that I ask all my guests is, um, what is your journey? Tell us your journey uh, into naturopathic medicine. How did you get here? Sure. So my background um, is actually in what I would call critical appraisal and personal development. So I was fortunate enough to be um, an undergraduate student at McMaster University in their very sort of specialized undergraduate health sciences program, which Yes, it was about biology and about immunology and whatnot, but really the purpose of the course um, and the whole program at large was to teach critical thinking skills, to teach communication skills, um, and to develop like really high quality lifelong learners. So whether or not we went on to pursue medicine or dentistry or uh, other fields in healthcare, um, that we actually had the tools to be you know, part of a evolution in healthcare, essentially, um, as a learner. So that was my background in school. And I became interested in naturopathic medicine um, throughout my schooling there. It was really in my last or final year of school in my undergraduate, where I realized that I had interest in things like preventative medicine. I had interest in nutrition and exercise. Um, and then after watching some personal experiences or family experiences, moving through the conventional healthcare system in Ontario, I realized that it wasn't maybe a great fit for me personally to be involved in that profession and started looking at other options. And I joke that I found naturopathic medicine with a really long Google search. So in the search bar, I literally typed like nutrition, preventative medicine, and like all the things I was interested in, which is ironic given that my schooling was in critical appraisal and research and literature review that I used Google to try and find my future career. Um, But that's what led me to pursue naturopathic medicine in the first place. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I I love Google for that purpose. You can really just like type in anything and figure out what you really need. Yeah, it solved my career problems. (laughs) It really did. That's awesome. Awesome. Okay, so what drew your interest towards women's health in general, and then especially in supporting women through miscarriages? Could you kind of take us through that journey? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, because my background is in evidence-based medicine, you know, when I was moving through my schooling with naturopathic uh, medicine, I was always looking for where I was going to be sort of the best fit in the conventional model of healthcare, right? There are a lot of things that we can't do with integrative support or with naturopathic medicine. Um, I wanted to know what we could do and what we were really good at and what the research actually was in support of us being part of that primary care model. And when I started looking at women's health, you know, we've got challenges like endometriosis and PCOS and fertility. Like I became the answer more often, right? Like it was the the research actually points towards an integrative approach as being the best approach. And that's not just my opinion. That's what the evidence actually suggests. So that felt like a really natural pull for me where I could really justify through the research why we should be approaching these conditions with a more integrative model versus 
um, sort of a prescription-based model that we have, you know, for many other health conditions, right, where maybe I don't have as big of a role. So I became interested in women's health in that way. And then it was through my own personal experience with miscarriage that really drew me into looking at that topic um, specifically. And that's what created that sort of passion project for me. It was after I had had three miscarriages and as a very like well-educated woman who had an interest in women's health, I still had gaps in my knowledge around what the risk factors were with respect to miscarriage and needed to dive really deep into that research to get the answers that I needed for my own health, which turned into me never wanting anyone else to have to go through that again, right? I kind of imagined that if I was begging for treatment as an educated naturopathic doctor, what the average woman's experience is in her fertility journey or miscarriage journey, she needed more support um, and she needed a resource and somebody on her team who could give her that kind of support. And that's what kind of drew me into that topic. Wow. Yeah, that's such a powerful story. Um, and having that that research background, that evidence-based background with your personal experiences really just like is extremely powerful. And I'm so grateful and uh, for you for sharing that with us. All right. So getting kind of into the like the main part of the topic. So we definitely want to get into the miscarriages um, and what people can do for that. So what have, within your research, what have you found to be some of the most common risk factors for, um, for recurrent pregnancy loss or miscarriages? That's a great question. So my big um, sort of shtick around miscarriages around early assessment. So one of the challenges that we face um, for women with miscarriage is that we often don't pursue understanding her risk or understanding um, how we should support her until she qualifies as having a diagnosis of recurrent pregnancy loss, which in many countries that include, that's having three or more miscarriages. Sometimes even some countries require that you have them back to back. Um, so for many women that are suffering through miscarriage, they don't get any kind of additional attention around trying to reduce the risk of a further miscarriage until she's had three, which the research actually suggests that many of the conditions that are uh, decreasing fertility in women in general also are risk factors for miscarriage, which is not often a connection that we're making. So the statement I always say is the reason or the same reason why a couple is sitting in a fertility clinic is also their increased risk of miscarriage. It's the same reason that they have an increased risk of miscarriage. But yet that's very rarely, those dots are not often connected, right? When you ask a woman who has PCOS what her challenges are with her fertility, she'll say, well, I don't ovulate, right? Mm -hmm. She very rarely will say, and I also have an increased risk of miscarriage, right? right. Or a woman who, again, like has premature ovarian failure will say, I don't have enough good quality eggs, but again, she very rarely understands that she also has an increased risk of miscarriage. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not sure why that is. I think we have profound technology in reproductive medicine that supports women so far. You know, when we get to the, the part where either we're putting an embryo back in, we're doing a transfer, or we're doing an insemination, or we're having couples do timed intercourse, we're kind of crossing our fingers and just hoping they don't miscarry, right? Maybe we're mm -hmm. applying some treatment, things like 
progesterone, but we really don't have the kind of technology and um, support to prevent miscarriage where we can really like influence the beginning of their cycle. So um, one of the things I always want women to know is like the same reason that they feel like they're struggling with their fertility is increasing their risk of miscarriage. And I want to have that conversation with women earlier because mm -hmm waiting for them to go through three painful cycles where they're having loss is, is really just delaying the kind of care that they need. And with women generally delaying their child rearing at this point anyways, a six month window of time through miscarriage and recovery and whatnot is a long period of time for a woman in her mid thirties. Um, so I just want to have that conversation earlier. And for me, it's really about helping couples understand how to be properly assessed so some miscarriages, certainly, we don't quite understand the how come part of why they happened, and maybe they just were not a viable pregnancy. But many miscarriages can be traced back to the underlying uh, challenges that a couple has with fertility. And I just want to have that conversation early with couples. Okay. Yeah. And what does uh, an assessment look like for you in your practice normally? Yeah, so it's definitely having a conversation about what we think the primary driver is around their fertility. So I labeled mm -hmm. off a couple things like mm -hmm. endometriosis or PCOS or ovarian right. failure. Um, you know, those are, or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, like these are risk factors for struggling with fertility in the first place. And so depending on, you know, the, a couple's concern, and I keep saying couple because the, the male certainly has a huge impact. Impact on miscarriage risk as well, although mm -hmm. we don't like diagnose them or define their challenges quite as specifically as we mm -hmm. do in women. Um, but whatever reason that woman is there for support with her fertility, I want to support her fertility and and talk about assessment from that perspective, but then also look at it through the lens of reducing miscarriage risk. So, for example, a woman who has PCOS if her insulin levels are elevated, if her homocysteine levels are elevated, that's going to increase her risk of miscarriage, even if she's cycling regularly and even if she ovulates. So that basic assessment that needs to be done really should be done in the context of what her underlying health risks are so that we can then apply support that's going to decrease miscarriage risk. The one sort of test that sort of across the board is beneficial is having vitamin D levels assessed. We know without a doubt, regardless of a woman's underlying health status, even if she's, you know, in air quotes, perfectly healthy, um, she, uh, a vitamin D deficiency will increase risk of miscarriage, even if women have no other risk factors. So that's a great test to get that conversation started, but also it's diving deep into that hormonal health history to make sure that there isn't some other obstacle that we need to look uh, closer into. Definitely. Yeah. And I like that um, you also included, I mean, it kind of goes back to, you know, just the basics of naturopathic medicine in general and finding the underlying cause, right? And what is actually going on with their fertility and um, optimizing their fertility, therefore mitigating or reducing the risk of miscarriage as well and working on both aspects of that instead of just like approaching it in in a more, I guess, guess reductionist way of just being like, okay, like you have the PCOS, here's the medication, but like, let's dive deeper and see what else is going on with your insulin levels, even if you're cycling normally. I like that you have this full comprehensive approach because that's really what it takes, right? Um, in any aspect of health. Um, but I right, also- Right, because those same risk yeah. factors also increase 
risk of, of challenges later in pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just say for argument's sake, they don't miscarry and they have high insulin and have high homocysteine, right? That does amplify the risk for gestational diabetes and preeclampsia and preterm labor and all sorts of other complications later in pregnancy. So it really is just addressing foundational health, right? And it has the side effect or side benefit of reducing miscarriage risk. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the other part that I really liked is how you um, talked about how it is a couple, right? So the male partner does also play a, a role in a woman's ability to carry to term. And, um, and yeah, so could you get into that part a little bit? What, what is the male's role in that? And how can that play a factor in miscarriages? <laughs> Well, they're about 50%, right? Which, you know, from a just a statistical perspective, right? Their, their contribution to the situation is about 50%. Certainly when we're talking strictly about miscarriage, there maybe is more environmental and meaning the uterine environment um, factors that start to play in. Um, but from an embryo perspective, they're 50% of the contribution, right? So mm -hmm. of course their underlying health is going to have an, an impact. I'll say we've generally minimized the impact of the male partner in the research because mm -hmm. we don't track it very effectively. We, a lot of the technology we use tries to absolve us from some of the sperm related challenges, right? So if the sperm quality is not ideal, we're still sort of selecting the, the healthiest one, maybe out of a group of mediocre um, sperm. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of parts about technology that have really minimized the role that the male partner is playing. And the research has really not focused on the male partner very much. Um, that said, in the last three years, there's definitely been a shift to say, hey, like if this is a mediocre pot of sperm, turns out, you know, our IVF procedures are not quite as effective or even finding lab work in the male partner like homocysteine, which is a cardiovascular risk mark uh, factor. Mm -hmm. Elevated homocysteine in the male partner actually increases risk of miscarriage. So we're starting to sort of tilt our vision towards being a little bit more um, mindful of the impact that the male partner will have on the, the sort of, reproductive health of a couple in general, which is a very positive thing. I think women bear a lot of the emotional responsibility of, you know, the um, fertility of the couple. I want to see the research shift to, you know, just shine some light on the fact that the woman is not the sole person who's responsible. Because I think even one of the questions I know you wanted to talk about was just how to help patients emotionally heal from miscarriage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, women certainly sort of will often feel like a miscarriage is her fault, right? And bear this like um, um, immense emotional burden from mm -hmm. suffering through miscarriage. I want her to know that that's, that there are equal opportunity there for both her and her partner to improve her health. Yes, definitely. And um, I completely agree with you. And this is why I do feel very passionately about making sure that when we talk about fertility and um, pregnancy and beyond that, whenever we're talking about these things, we're including both parties, right? Because like you said, it takes two. Um, it's 50% on the male side as well. And so um, that's been, that's definitely a huge passion of mine too, is just to, to make sure that both parties are very involved in that whole process and um, understand the impact of um, both of their health and how it can definitely support one another in that way as well. Um, and then, yeah, so we did talk about, uh, well, 
we'll get like actually let's just get into that emotional part of it um what 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 would you say to a woman who has miscarried and in what ways would you support her yeah that's a great question i mean i think the you know, partly just bearing witness to the pain and the grief around miscarriage, I think is a really important step um, that helping her acknowledge what it feels like, right? She's really mourning her future, right? The moment I think that a couple finds out they get pregnant, they start to rewire their idea of what their future looks like, right? That includes another human being, it includes another role um, for them. And then when they have that taken away, right? And they go back to their normal life. And I talk about this in, in the book, as this was my experience exactly. Um, I really was mourning an idea, right, of becoming a mother versus, you know, it, it felt like a different kind of loss to me, right? Because I went back to, and I joke, like, my life wasn't crappy before I got pregnant. It was great. But having to go back to my regular life really felt like so much grief, right? Because I had been so excited about the prospect of falling pregnant. Um, but I think acknowledging that there is a huge emotional tax and that it may take some time to recover from that grief. Miscarriages are often dealt with very medically, um, right? Women can be sitting in the ER. They can be sitting in the ER beside people who have influenza or who have a broken arm. And there she is sort of bearing her soul, having a very emotional um, experience in the emergency room. I think just helping her be able to vocalize those challenges and what that's felt like and, and her feelings about it is super important. It's also quite a bit of, um, I'm going to say it's a taboo topic because I certainly think it's doing better than when it was when I had my miscarriages, you know, 12 years ago. Um, but encouraging her to seek out support from people around her and her family and to talk about her situation um, because that's to, to keep it inside, you, you don't realize how common the miscarriages actually are. Um, so I think that's important as well. And interestingly, there's quite a bit of research on how male partners respond um, to pregnancy loss. And so that's also a really important um, piece to look into, especially if a couple is going to start trying again. So the research suggests that because the male partner feels like they need to take on that um, you know, sort of protective caring role to the female partner who's moved through the miscarriage, they often end up having an increase in substance abuse and a decrease in their nutrition and exercise, which this has been researched, right? What happens to the male partner as they move through miscarriage? Their response is slightly different than the female partner um, and often involves more substance abuse like alcohol. Um, and cannabis, both of which have an impact on future fertility, right? So we imagine that couple is going through a grieving process and period. We just want them to have effective, healthy tools for how to navigate that so that when they are ready to try again, that they're stepping forward with like their best foot possible. Yeah, definitely. Again, some extremely valid points that you bring up on the the combination of both partners again and like supporting both um, during that experience. Um, so I appreciate that. But what are, um, so, so getting kind of going back into the physical, what are some things that um, couples can do in terms of um, 
like essential like nutrients or supplements that you say that I mean I, I, I feel like it's kind of the same thing as like going back to like making sure that we're addressing the fertility but are there any like key things that you really feel like each person should be taking or supplementing with or doing something with their diet or exercise? Yeah, that's a great question. And really in my book, Caring to Term, um, I do go through each individual condition and talk about all of the nutrients that have been studied to help reduce miscarriage risk. Because I mean, when we start to talk about things like nutrition, maybe we can be a bit more generalized, right? right. And say, that sort of Mediterranean style diet. We want um, to remove alcohol when we're attempting to fall pregnant. Caffeine does seem to have a risk um, of miscarriage and early pregnancy loss, specifically in the female partner. Um, so there are some like global suggestions around diet and nutrition um, that it's easy to say kind of across the board, this is what we probably should have things look like. When it comes down to the new nutrients though, like specifically thinking about supplements um, and medications, it really should be prescribed based on the root cause of why we think that that couple is at risk in the first place. Like certainly we want couples to be using prenatal multivitamin, have vitamin D adequacy. Um, you know, certainly there's some evidence for omega-3 fats um, kind of for all women. Um, but when we get into the sort of the, the details of, well, if you have PCOS, what are you going to do versus if you have endometriosis, what are you going to do? Um, those nutrients are condition specific, right? And mm -hmm. so I always kind of poise the question to patients when you know, they're taking a lot of supplements and they're saying, well, I don't, I've never really found anything that works. I mean, half the time people are taking things that are not indicated for their condition, right? But when we look specifically at data, you know, for one particular nutrient, let's say like inositol for PCOS, the data is really clear, right? About what it does and, and what the impact is and how we expect it to support that woman. If a random woman who does not have PCOS takes inositol, nothing happens, right? And so really clear in the book to like, do not take this shopping list and go buy all the things because that's not actually the most appropriate way to support your miscarriage risk. Um, and it's kind of missing the point, right? Like the point is, is assessment and specificity around what we're doing with you. Um, but certainly all couples can benefit from that sort of those generalized like high antioxidant fruit and vegetable intake, lean protein, nuts and seeds, olive oil, fish, you know, the omega-3s. Um, and then specifically the things that are harmful or appear to be harmful for miscarriage risk is alcohol and caffeine. And I would say my recommendation for those is to have zero because um, we haven't established what a low tolerance level kind of looks like, right? So the only thing we know is none is fine, right? We don't know if one drink or if one small cup of coffee is, is okay. And I think with the high stakes of, um, you know, especially with fertility treatments, I, I wouldn't want to take the gamble of having patients consume alcohol or caffeine leading into a really expensive and very emotionally draining uh, experience like IVF. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And again, I appreciate you kind of bringing back again to the principles of naturopathic medicine and like finding the root cause instead of just supplementing. And I always like to tell people too that supplements are meant to supplement your life, right? They're not supposed to be taking over anyway. And so we do need to work on the foundations first, but then get more specific individualized supplements or nutrients that can help support you and your specific needs. Um, okay. So 
I think that is all the main questions that I had for you today. Was there anything else that uh, I may have missed that you would like to add? Or any resources so. that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I think the the book was a big labor of love for me. Like it's, I think there's 300 references in it. It's not, it is an easy read, first of all. Mm -hmm. um, so it's written for women, right? It's not written for practitioners. It's written for women. Um, it's written like I rant, right? So it looks, it sounds like you're having a, like a long conversation with me about um, miscarriage risk, but it also has 300 references, right? So my purpose of writing that is really, and my whole passion around women's health is mostly around advocacy because women don't get what they don't ask for in their healthcare, right? And so I need you to know how to go into those appointments to advocate for yourself. I need you to have confidence that what like what you can get out of your healthcare experience, regardless of who you see. So that's really what that resource is for. It's lists of lab work that we should be highly considering. It's lists of questions we need to ask you about your miscarriage risk. It's lists of medications that perhaps you could have a conversation with your practitioner about. That's really what my sort of overarching goal is for women is for them to feel really confident in how to advocate for what they need out of their healthcare experience. And that's whether we're talking about fertility and miscarriage, or menopause, I always want women to feel really well educated on this topic because there's so much noise out there as far as women's health online, um, where if I have the skills to be able to distill the research down and give it to you in a way that's digestible and easy for you to understand, I feel like that I need that to be my gift, right, to women, um, especially who are going through something as, as uh, challenging as fertility and miscarriage. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I... It sounds like an amazing resource and I definitely will have that all in the show notes below. So make sure everyone checks those out. Um, but all right, so let's get into the more rapid fire questions. So they're called rapid fire questions, but you don't have to answer them rapidly. Take your time. It's just- I'm incapable of answering something as rapid fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, because you don't have to. Not okay. a problem at all. All right, so my first question is, um, what does Mahan Health mean to you? Um, that's a, it's a good question. Like for me, I I think good health is mostly about like, and I don't know how to say this in a, in a succinct way. So like I said, I, I can't do, I can't You're do fine. succinct. Um, like I want women to understand their body and their health and to understand what patterns of health and behavior have an impact on how she feels. So, you know, and if you follow on Instagram, like I'm really not a proponent of restrictive dieting of, you know, like I find that so much of the health and wellness industry has been tried to be distilled down to these 10 perfect ways of you acting and you're going to do this forever when really that's not real life. Right. I, mm -hmm. I always feel so grateful that I get to walk with patients through so many seasons in their life, right? Seasons where they're doing amazing and they're on the, on the, on the wagon and exercising and eating well. And then there's seasons of their life where they're stressed or they're transitioning or they're suffering. Um, and I want them to understand how to build foundational health so that they can continue to have good health even in those dark moments, right? Like even in those hard parts of their life, I am not Part, I don't want to be part of someone's health for 21 days, right? I don't want to walk them through a 21 day 
cleanse or, you know, juice fast or whatever. And then on day 22, then go back to their life and not have the skills they need to navigate their health going forward. I want to be part of this learning process for patients where they understand themselves and their health and what their risks are, and then how to layer positive behavior change on top of each other so that they build resiliency in their health. So to me, that's really, that's great health, right? It's that if shit hits the fan, sorry, my left star, if she hits the fan in their life, that they know how to pick themselves back up and they have the tools and the skills to navigate that because that's reality, right? Like that's like, that's true health to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely love that so much. It's like feeling empowered with your own health so that you know, you know, you have the tools, right? When, cause thing, like you said, shit will hit the fan at some point. And so being able to, in mind, body, and spirits to get through that um, versus let that take you, take you down. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay. So the next two questions are, um, they could be related. They don't have to be, it's completely up to you. Um, but I am going to ask them together. So what was the most difficult health change for you to make and what are you still working on? Hmm. Um, I, I don't find too many health uh, changes that difficult to make if I understand why I need to do them. I think maybe the most profound health change I've ever made is to, uh, choose to be alcohol free myself. Um, I think that's maybe the most important health change I've made and I won't call it difficult because I truly, you know, don't feel like it was a very difficult decision. It felt like a very obvious decision, but it's one certainly that's a bit counterculture and certainly I have to keep saying yes to myself and yes to that decision often, right? Because that's something that we certainly come up against um, quite often, right? And as far as like culture and whatnot. So maybe that's the most difficult one, just because that's one that just keeps coming back, right? And keep, and I always say to patients, like, it's very difficult to say yes to yourself all the time, right? And it's in those weak moments or whatnot, where you maybe are, are not willing to hold up those boundaries to maintain what your actual goals are. It's easy to slip in the chocolate chip cookie when we're tired and sad, right? But saying yes to yourself and saying, you know, I'd feel much better if I just didn't do that. Um, so maybe that's my most difficult one. Although, like I said, it, to me, it felt like a very easy decision. Um, health plan or health uh, changes that I'm still working on. Um, probably going to bed on time. <laughs> and I would say like carving out time for nervous system rest, right? I, I joke that I'm a type A or recovering type A or recovering perfectionist. Um, I certainly could work 20 hours a day um, if I could. And that's something that I have to sort of work on constantly to remind myself to, you know, I'm not a very good meditator. I'm not very good at carving out the time for those kinds of self-care that give my nervous system the chance to um, relax. I certainly have been, you know, walked the line of burnout there a couple of times just from overworking, but I truly am like super excited about my work. <laughs> so it's hard for me to put it down. And if I have a stray moment, like I do not watch TV, I read on PubMed. And so, but that's probably something I could work on. Um, I probably could find more time to meditate. 
Yes, definitely. Well, I do want to say, first of all, that um, you can't be good or bad at meditating. And so true. You, you just meditate. Yep. The first step <laughs> yeah. is to stop judging my meditating, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's definitely a part of it. But then also going back to the alcohol, I think that is something that a lot of people can relate to. Um, because like you said, it's, it's hard to say yes to yourself every time, especially in those difficult times. And um, for myself, what I've found is that saying no can be saying no to things that do not serve me um whether that's alcohol or you know foods or or people right saying no and creating those boundaries i've found to be super empowering in itself and so um so realizing that every time i say no to something that doesn't serve me i'm saying yes to myself and um and i really right. love that you you are constantly talking about saying yes to yourself because that's really what it is Okay, so my last question is, if you could have a commercial um, about like a health announcement that can get spread to the entire world, what would it be about and why? Um, I'm thinking. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a super elaborate commercial. And funnily, like, I, I truly would just make it the intro to my own podcast, right? Which is really about, about which now I'm trying to remember what that uh, <laughs> script was. Um, but I want women to be curious about their health, right? I want women to feel interested in themselves, interested and curious about their health. Um, I want them to feel empowered that they can make change. And that's the other thing like that I, I really like, that's kind of my PSA is that we're, you're in charge, right? Like you're driving the bus. Um, you don't have to be in a hockey rink five days a week. That's a choice, right? You don't have to buy your lunch. You don't have to stay up until midnight. These are all things that are very, very difficult for us to change, right? Um, but we have to remember that it's the pattern of your behavior that, that dictates your health or your lack of health, not the one-off behavior. I always joke that we all have that peanut butter sandwich and a hockey rink day, right? In our week where you just cannot keep it together, right? You work from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., drive your kids all over Hell's Half Acre, grab something out of the drive-thru. We all have that, right? And I think if we pretend we don't, then we're really, you know, setting our viewers up and setting our audience up for failure because they think they have to hold themselves to this standard, which like absolutely not. Like I will definitely eat a grilled cheese at least once a week for dinner because that's just all we had time for. But I can't eat a grilled cheese four nights a week, right? Because that's when it would start to show up for me and my health. And that's the same sort of concept I want people to think about. It's that it's the pattern. It's not about perfection. There is a ton of room between doing things perfectly and totally effing it up, but we never talk about that, right? When we, when we consume health information, you see the beautiful smoothie bowl, which to this day, I've never made one. And I certainly could not make it look as beautiful as they do online. No, or our health is an absolute dumpster fire right? Where we can't seem to get any of it together. What I want is for women to learn how to live in the middle, right? How do you 
go through the drive through and it not totally derail you? How do you go to a birthday party and not have shame about the cake? Right. I want, and partly we do that by teaching those skills so that she knows how to pick herself back up the next morning, or she can like contextualize those choices and say, you know what, it's okay if I don't go to the gym for four days because the next couple of weeks look pretty good. Right. Um, and so I want to get away from that, like, you know, dichotomy of perfect and terrible when it comes to talking about health and wellness um, and teach women how to live in the middle. So I think that's what my, you know, sort of PSA is and, and to be curious about how to do that and that a to, and also to remember that it's a really long game, right? That no health is won or lost in a seven day window of time. Um, and so it's about the patterns that we repeat year over year that make the big difference. Yeah, I appreciate that so much because I know for myself personally too, I tend to be such an all or nothing person all the time. And I think that is, like you said, so much of our culture is like all or nothing. You're one extreme or the other. And um, that has been uh, something for me to learn from my own personal journey as well. And so like if I have the pizza because I'm like feeling super exhausted, I'm just like, I don't care right now. I just want pizza and ice cream. I'll have the pizza and ice cream. But then the next morning I'll get up and work out and have my smoothie and like I'm like back in it and I feel totally fine you know um so I appreciate that like bringing it together there's something in the middle doesn't have to be extreme Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so um thank you so much for coming on the show um last my last question for you is where can people find you yeah. Um, so I'm a prolific Instagrammer. I love Instagram. Um, that's definitely the more sort of candid personal side. Um, lots of sort of health tips there, inspiration, links to free resources, links to my podcast. I have some downloadable content there, a fertility checklist, um, some information about hormones there that can be downloaded for free. Um, and then the links are there to my clinical practice as well, which I do treat women all over Ontario for um, hormonal conditions. And so whether we're talking about, you know, those primary conditions like PCOS or endometriosis or how they relate to fertility, um, I can work with women all over Ontario, Canada um, for those concerns. Um, and my clinic website is actually clarityhealthburlington.ca. Great. Okay, so I will have all of that information in the show notes below, and I'm losing my voice. I apologize. Um, But uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciated having you, and I learned so much, and I know our listeners will too. So um, thank you again so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed that episode. As I stated in the beginning, um, this is something so many women experience. And so I hope that this was a little bit um, more empowering and helpful. And what are some things that you can do to help uh, ensure that you're able to carry two term? All right. I will have Dr. Robertson's information in the show notes below. So make sure to check her out. But that's all I got for you all today. Wishing you all Mahan health and I will see you next time. (laughs) 